Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. This week on Babel, John talks to Hassan Barari, professor of international politics at Qatar University, about how the Middle East views the U.S. presidential election. Then, John, Will, and I discuss the nature of anti-Americanism in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Hassan Berari is a professor of international politics at Qatar University. He is on leave from his position as a professor of political science at the University of Jordan. He's the author of something like 10 books and somebody I've known for many, many years. Hassan, welcome to Babel. Thanks for having me, John. How much attention are people in the Arab world paying to the U.S. presidential elections? Uh, It's like they've been following all elections, but this one is unique, actually. Is unique because of uh, the character of Trump and because of his, uh, his policies in the Middle East, because of his statement when he talks about Arab leaders as well, and because of the damage that he has done to American standing in the region. So people really are watching this election, and I would say the majority of them, I don't have really uh, statistics, but this is my impression, the majority of them wants Biden to win and wants Trump to leave the scene because I think he has frightened them in the Middle East. Yeah, I've, I've been watching... Arab television for decades, and I've seen any number of commentators urging the United States to leave the Middle East. There seems to be significant popular sentiment wanting the U.S. government to leave. Why suddenly are people afraid that a U.S. president might do it and arguably fulfilling the wish of what people have been calling for for decades? Arab regimes want the United States to stay in the region. Actually, they suspect that America has become more disengaging from the Middle East over the last probably 10 years with the pivot to the Asia. So the Americans want to shift their resources to do something else somewhere else. Uh, but the problem here that with this vacuum, strategic vacuum that would be uh, left by the United States, who's going to fill that vacuum? You know, this is one of the key questions. But when I talk to people in the White House, they all say, look, the president was right that they moved the embassy to Jerusalem and there wasn't a big human cry. There's a peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, and there wasn't a big hue and cry, that all of these sacred cows that people thought were inviolable were violated, and there wasn't uprising, there weren't protests. I mean, the protests are in the past, and the argument that people make is that people have moved on, they're concerned with domestic bread and butter issues, they're concerned with other things, and the Palestinians are an artifact of an older generation. Why is that not accurate in your view? No, no, I'm not saying that. I think the way the administrations read the region is correct. Our public just say things, they don't really do anything. And when they move the embassy, I knew actually that, you know, people would protest, would do some demonstrations, and then they go back business as usual. And this is one of probably the driving force of the uh, American Republican Party all the time. They really don't see the Arab masses as something important. And they also look at the regimes. They see them as reliant and dependent on the Americans. So it's as if Saudi Arabia, for instance, needs America more than America needs Saudi Arabia. And because of that, you know, Trump would you know, maybe you think that, look, I can't do it and I don't give a damn. And then people would follow. So they will instead maybe uh, do some demonstration and protest, but then nothing would happen. The American interest would not be jeopardized in this part of the world. This is the reading of the administration, which is correct. I don't say it's not correct. But this is at the short 
term, you know, if you look at the, the long term, I think this kind of policy is short-sighted because it's not a recipe for stability in the region. When I talk to both people in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, they argue that the future affection of Arab publics for the United States isn't especially relevant. The affection of governments toward the United States isn't especially relevant. As we move to a world where there is more energy in more places, and it's less centered on hydrocarbons and more centered on renewables and other kinds of things, that where the Middle East is politically and socially and economically in 10 years is less important than it is now. And where we'll be socially, economically, and politically in 20 years is less important than where we'll be in 10 years. And so if this gulf opens up, that's okay in the views of many strategists. The Middle East, both governments and populations, how do they react to that reality? Well, actually, they understand this logic carefully, but I hear I'm talking about a fundamental issue. If you want to have a stable Middle East, you have to fix the problems. You can't impose one position or one opinion on the people of the Middle East. I understand the balance of power. I understand that people are actually having uh, no voice because of the lack of democracy. But in 10 years down the road, things would definitely change and people would not accept to be ruled in the same way as we are being ruled right now. And you can see with the revolution of social media and the way people get organized, I think it's going to have a difference. The last thing that people want to uh, have in the Middle East is an imposed solution on them. They might live with it for some years, but look, at one point they would rise up against this and the American allies would pay the price. I'm here, I'm talking about Arab regimes. They cannot stay in where they are with the same policies. And you, you mentioned a very important thing that the Middle East is no longer probably relevant to the United States, or maybe in 10, 15 years down the road, the oil things would not be important for America, but Israel would be very important for America. And this has to do with American domestic politics. And Israel will definitely have trouble with its neighbors. What do you think Arabs expect a Biden policy toward the Middle East to look like? Because one of the observations people have made is that the Trump Middle East strategy is not very different from the Obama Middle East strategy. There's a consensus among both. The U.S. has been overweighted in the region, that the U.S. shouldn't intervene heavily in Syria. Do you think people expect a Biden policy should it come to be to be extremely different, slightly different? It would be slightly different. I think it's also about style. You know, the way Trump deals with the Middle East, he's like, you know, someone is real estate man. You know, he wants to cut deals. Biden, I think, would be different. Definitely slightly different. Style would be totally different. He would not support the war in Yemen. This is what he said. And this would put a lot of pressure on the Saudis to, and the Emirates to put an end to this war. He would probably negotiate with the Iranians and they can reach a different deal. That is, you know, at least he would bring the United States back to the deal. And this would mitigate the tension in this part of the world. But also he wouldn't be that biased in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And this is very important for Palestinians, for Jordanians. I'm not saying it's very important for the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates. But also at the same time, as I said, the style is very important. But it feels to me like there are a lot of American presidents who try to address the Arab street, who try to address issues of democratization, who try to push authoritarian governments to lighten their grip. And they have initial popularity and they end up leaving office very unpopular. 
you've expressed a lot of optimism that a Biden administration would do a lot of things that a lot of Arabs would like. But I just wonder whether a Biden administration after four years would be popular for having done the things you're calling on to do, or whether there would still be friction between the United States government and the Arab street over any number of issues where the U.S. would be seen to be failing. And that is not the prospect of close ties, of affinity that could last more than a year or two. Look, I agree with your assessment. I'm not saying that Biden would, would solve the problems, but at least he would not make it worse. You know, Trump has made it worse in his deal of the century and the way he brought Arab regimes to Washington to sign the normalization deals with Israel. And people in the Middle East look, oh my God, what is this? You know, Palestine but they're not is protesting. I mean, what I've seen on social media is not right. overwhelmingly negative. What I've seen on social media is a combination of people who don't care and people who are supportive and people who are hostile. But it's not well, 90-10 against it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, but this is called negative realism. It doesn't mean that they condone what Trump has been doing in the Middle East. Um, it's a different story here. I would say maybe the public, the, the Arab street would not rise up against anything in masses, but also it's going to create a lot of anti-Americanism in the region. And if, if I were president of the United States, I wouldn't look at the reaction. I would, I would look at the sentiments in the street. And in the long run, maybe with uh, with ascendants of other superpowers like China, for instance, they would compete with the Americans in the Middle East with the mood that is anti-American. They need to think of it. It's not about the direct reaction to the American policies in the region. In the long run, I think America is going to leave. Is going to leave this part of the world. Yes, it's going to leave this part of the world. Maybe I don't know when, but it all boils down to one thing that Biden and even Obama before him. They didn't do wonders in the Middle East, but they didn't make it worse. Now, Trump has come to office and he made it worse. I have been seeing anti-Americanism as a winning strategy in the Middle East since at least the 1950s. I mean, you could argue that the King Crane Commission represented the high watermark of people's trust in the Middle East when the U.S. didn't have much of a footprint. And you could argue that the Chinese are benefiting now because they don't have much of a footprint. So it's unknown and people seem favorably disposed toward China. But it does seem to me that this idea of anti-Americanism is not highly variable depending on whether you like President Trump or he's pro-Israeli or anything else. That anti-Americanism has been a populist thread in the Middle East perhaps because the U.S. has been seen as a guarantor of a status quo that people don't like. But the anti-Americanism has been durable in the Middle East. It doesn't respond to exactly who the president is. It's a durable trend. Your assessment is correct here. I'm not talking about anti-Americanism because of Trump. Uh, I only say that he made it worse. Anti-Americanism has been in the Middle East for years and for decades, actually because of the alliance with autocrats in the region and because of uh, occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan and because of also of the, uh, the special relationship with Israel that has not been helpful for making peace in the region. This is going to continue, this kind of anti-Americanism. Maybe they don't see the utility of changing the mood in, in the Arab street, but I'm here, hypothetically, I'm saying that if China rises to a level where it could compete with the United States in the Middle East, China will have more friends 
in the Middle East, at least at the popular level, than the United States. So this is my point. Right. When I was in Egypt in 1992, when George H.W. Bush was running for re-election against a, a young politician named Bill Clinton, Egyptians were dumbfounded that a president who had just won a war with Iraq would be turned out by the public. And at that time, Hassan Mubarak, I think, had just been through his third term as president. And the idea of a change in government, the idea of a president not being reelected, was a remarkable novelty to people in Egypt. You can have a society where people lose elections. Is that the real inspirational quality of the United States, or, or am I missing something? I'm, I'm not sure that it has any link with inspirations in the Middle East. They always look at American elections in this way. Um, you know, presidents come and go. So for mainly for domestic reasons, for the economic issues. But we have here a mindset in, in the Arab world. So once you become a president, you know, you're going to stay. As Roger Owen once said, is presidents for life. So, CC, I don't think that we're going to see the end of CC until probably he dies, you know, or some political, even military coup d'etat. So, presidents in the Middle East, there's one good term for uh, Saadeddin Ibrahim, you call this Jumlikiyya in Arabic, which is um, Republicans and monarchy at the same time. So, it is like Assad, for instance, uh, Gaddafi, he came in 1969, hence stayed until he got killed. So, it, it seems to me that the political culture in the region would not get any inspiration from what is happening in America. They don't really look at America as a model for democracy, especially these days, because Trump's election, I think in the view of people that it undermined the American democratic institutions. And then we had Trump. I, I don't think that the Arab masses would look at America as a source of inspiration when it comes to sharing a president. On the contrary, they see America as an obstacle for democratic changes in the Middle East. CC is being supported by the American administration, or autocrats are being supported by American uh, administrations, whether Democrats or even Republicans. So I think one more time, and this adds to the point that I made earlier, that anti-Americanism also has to do with the support to autocrats in the region. But I, I would argue that even when the U.S. didn't support autocrats, even when the Obama administration was supportive of an elected government in Egypt and critical of Abdel Sisi taking power, the U.S. was vilified broadly in Egypt. The U.S. was vilified in the Arab world. I think there, to a remarkable degree, it seems to me that U.S. presidents who try to take the side of the people don't get the gratitude of the people. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, America is, it's not one issue. It's like, it's very complicated. But also by the same token, John, when Obama supported the NATO intervention in, in Libya, America became popular in the Middle East. All of a sudden, you see articles and newspapers. You see people commenting on TV, talking nicely about the enlightened role of the United States because it helped the uh, Libyan people to get rid of the dictators. But then again, when Bashar bombed his own people by chemical weapon, I think in 2013, 21st August, and they crossed Obama's red lines, he, he did nothing. You know, I think that was a game changer. So it was a point when people say, oh, Obama was not really genuine when he talks about uh, supporting people. Obama hesitated, and that's why he enabled the Russian to come in. He um, set the stage for uh, Russian intervention, which is really bad one in, in the Middle East, especially in, in Syria. So I think Obama was judged toward the end of his term, second term, 
in a negative way simply because of what he did not, not because of what, of what he did. Now, Trump is being judged because of what he did in, in the Middle East. And I think this is the uh, uh, the difference. And here, John, I agree with you. It's not about uh, supporting this or that autocrat. Uh, America is not having a favorite standing in the Arab public opinion because of many issues that you know them from 60s, 70s until today. It's not only autocrats. This is one part of the story. Hassan Berari, we will together look forward to the results of the U.S. election and what it means for U.S. foreign policy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, John, for having me. Next up, John, Will, and I discuss the nature of anti-Americanism in the Middle East. Following the September 11th attacks, President Bush famously asked, why do they hate us? Anti-Americanism is obviously a spectrum, with violence being a fringe extreme on it. So I wanted to start by asking, what does anti-Americanism in the Middle East look like today? What are the different ways that it manifests? It feels different. You know, there was a time when there was an intense ideological split and anti-Americanism was being fomented partly by the Soviet Union, which tried to make people hostile to the United States, partly by a sort of sense the U.S. was in league with imperialists like Britain and France. And then I think there was an anti-Americanism that came out of the Salafi movement, which was against the West in general, and the U.S. is leader of the West. There's anti-Americanism that comes out of Iranian hostility to the United States and vice versa. I think there's some anti-Americanism that comes out of a sense the U.S. is the guarantor of an unsatisfactory status quo in the region. But it feels to me like in the last 10 years or maybe more, the anti-Americanism isn't this sort of acute anti-Americanism we're getting more of the sense that the United States is just not a constructive actor, not helping people, not relevant to people. It's nothing that the people feel a need to respond to so much as gut instinct that people feel. I think I agree. I think it's the result of the failures of the United States to achieve some of its aims in the region. And I think one of the most significant is is clearly the invasion of Iraq, but more recently than the failure of the Arab Spring to bring about positive change for millions of Arabs and people across the Middle East. And I think there's a feeling that the United States can't deliver, maybe, that it makes quite big promises or has historically made some quite big promises that don't actually improve people's lives. And so I think anti-Americanism is maybe more of a feeling of the unhelpful role that America has played in the region and its inability to make things better. You know, it's sort of funny because on the one hand, you could say the U.S. has aligned with authoritarians. On the other hand, you can say, as some authoritarians do, the U.S. threw Hosni Mubarak under the bus after decades of partnership. And the U.S. doesn't emerge better from that discussion. The U.S. seems to sort of accumulate the sense of misplaced hopes of the U.S. being an obstacle to what people want, certainly not the U.S. not being relevant to what people want. And we see some sense that China is a rising power and interest in China. We see some uh, admiration of the UAE and some of the surveys that we see of young people in the Arab world. But there really is this sense that the U.S. isn't capable of genuinely improving people's lives. 
And so therefore, why should we feel affinity? And I think part of it is about inconsistency as well. As you say, John, there are some authoritarians that the U.S. has moved against and others that it's very strong allies with. When talking about anti-Americanism, is there an important distinction between being anti-Americans and being anti-U.S. government? Why does that matter? Well, some people like the American model. People look at the American model and say, I don't like that at all. I don't like the fact that people don't work together. I don't like the fact that kids will assimilate rather than remain part of both a family and a distinct cultural group. I think there's a lot more ambivalence, and there is certainly ambivalence about Americans who come and and act in ways that people find disrespectful and reckless and amoral and expect people to tolerate it. I started off by asking about President Bush's response to the 9-11 attacks, but anti-Americanism is not always expressed that way. We've talked about people's opinions and why they may have them, but how else is this anti-Americanism expressed? Yeah, I think one of the interesting consequences of the Arab Spring is that the people in governments decided that in some ways the international peace of their hostility was a distraction from people dealing with situations at home. But yeah, I think you see some in, in boycotting goods, people being not interested in affiliating with American organizations, people not interested in working on U.S. government projects. But I think for a lot of Americans and a lot of American activities in the Middle East, it's not so much anything you can pinpoint. It's that things you do have less of a multiplier effect. There are fewer people taking you up on your ideas than there might have been. The U.S. had been much more of a model, I think, to a larger part of the population. And now is a model to a smaller part of the population. Now, part of it is it's hard to see because so much of the world has has followed an American method of consuming, of, of dressing, even of speaking. So the United States is less distinct in some ways because the whole world has become more globalized. But I think also what is distinct about the United States is attractive to a diminishing set of people. Still a lot of people, but a diminishing set of people. I do think that in some ways, some friends that I have spoken to in the Middle East have said that they view how President Trump has interacted in the region as just being honest and being more open about the biases and the actual interests that the U.S. really has, and that his clear bias towards Israel and his kind of abandonment of of attempting to be an honest broker between the Israelis and Palestinians, maybe is it, it's stark to see, but it's just confirmed what they already believed. So in some ways, I think that Trump administration has confirmed a lot of the ideas that people had about the role of the United States. And I think it might be difficult for a subsequent president to undo some of that and to say, no, actually, we do care about human rights. We do care about the aspirations of Palestinians, things like that. But in a context where the U.S. is going to be reducing its footprint in the Middle East, how much the U.S. cares and how much the U.S. is willing to do in that context is going to have an impact as well. I mean, the U.S. may care more, but be willing to do less because of a sense that the real stakes are first at home and secondarily in Asia. And while we may do some things in the Middle East to be helpful, that's not where we're putting our large strategic investments. That adds credit, though, to John's point during the interview that 
despite all of these unprecedented steps with regards to normalization, there hasn't been an accompanying unprecedented level of protest or opposition. And maybe that's, as Will said, the moves are just confirming what many people already knew was the United States bias. So I think it's partly because of a sense that people are much more focused on their domestic situation and, and feel that some of the international issues have been a distraction. It is partly because some governments are clearly behind this and people oppose their governments with some reluctance because the experience is pretty clear of what happens when the government's made a strategic decision and you're not on board. Some of it is surely people who are tired of the Palestinian leadership's failures. Genuinely, it's the leadership's problem. How much is that my problem? And then some of it is. So the, here's the United States finally being frank about what its interests really are. It's all of those things. It's a bouquet of things. As somebody who's watched the Middle East for a long time, I'm often surprised by it. I am certainly surprised that young people seem to be in so much of a different place because when Arab satellite television started broadcasting Palestinian-Israeli violence, it had a huge galvanizing effect that you could see the Palestinian suffering in a visceral way. And the young people who grew up on Arab satellite television seeing that seemed to have much less emotional and ideological affinity to Palestinians. There's something interesting in that. I'm not sure what it is, but it does seem that there is a generational divide. And while older people do feel an importance and solidarity for Palestinians, younger people say, I have my life. And I'm not sure that what's happening there with the United States or any other country really matters. So I think regardless of the outcome of a November 3rd election, the anti-Americanism is likely here to stay, but it was good to discuss it and unpack it a bit. Will and John, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.